it's just about finding this calm. And I, you have to, the calm in the storm is always your exhale. And if the one thing people can take from this podcast is prioritize your exhale because your inhale will come and it's much more intuitive. Welcome to the Effortless Swimming Podcast, the show that helps swimmers and triathletes love the water, become a better swimmer, and live a better life. Here's your host, Brenton Ford. Welcome to the Effortless Swimming Podcast. My guest today is Alex from AB Physiology. Alex, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, man. So uh, a, um, a swimmer that I'm coaching introduced me to you. Uh, so Alison, she said, I've been doing some breathwork training with Alex and he's really helped me improve my breathing in the, in the pool, in swimming. And I think it'd be good for you to have a chat to him. So I, uh, I reached out to you and um, we're able to coordinate this and uh, just sort of chatting before this podcast and just via email. It sounds as though uh, there's a lot of crossover from what you do and how you approach things to how I like to approach swimming coaching and working with people. So for those listening to the podcast, what's your, what's your background and, and how would you describe what you do? So technically I'm a clinical exercise physiologist. I removed the exercise part from my brand as AB physiology. And I did that because most people would get fixated on that first word and then uh, conflate myself with a glorified personal trainers or strength and conditioning coaches. And I went to university for, I got an undergraduate degree in exercise science. I did a uh, miscellaneous year in advanced study in neuroscience and then got a clinical master's degree in, in physiology. So I wanted to try and separate that. And, and a lot of what I do now on the outside doesn't quite look like the traditional thought of exercise. So I'm a clinical physiologist and the way I view this job is we sit in the pocket between the highly objective physical practices of like physiotherapy and osteopathy in the traditional senses and the more subjective psychological practices of behavior change. Because as a physiologist, my primary tool to help an individual achieve their health or performance outcomes is behavior change. And a lot of people... I've found live on one side of this. They are either highly objective or highly subjective. And they don't like to talk to each other very much. So I've tried to sit in this middle pocket and I was very fortunate for a few years. I was running a team of clinical psychologists and physiotherapists with a physiologist like myself. I was heading up a team there working with our veterans. And it was a really, really enlightening experience and extremely helpful as a practitioner because I got to play in a team and getting that team to run smoothly was my responsibility and it was difficult because in health that is difficult. Multiple practitioners working together can cause problems. I was fortunate to have a fantastic team around me and I got to grow so much as a practitioner. And when I finished there, that's when I branched off and I started doing my own thing. I do lots with breathing, mostly with MMA fighters uh, in, in terms of athletes and jujitsu due to my background in jujitsu. Uh, and I also work with those who are ill, whether it's PTSD, anxiety, depression, I work with people on the NDIS. I work with everyday people who just want to get better at managing stress. And I've kind of over these years funneled it down to being like a stress adaption specialist, whether it's physical or mental stress, there are ways we can learn to adapt and overcome these things to give ourselves a better chance to succeed. And that's where I come in. Use your Fantastic. physiology to your advantage. 
And that, uh, that stress you're talking about, uh, a lot of people that I work with, particularly those that are new to swimming, they encounter that when they either first start swimming, there's that, that panic of like, I, you're in the water, it's an uncommon, it's an unfamiliar environment and, and the stress levels rise, but particularly for open water swimming and in a race environment where there could be hundreds or thousands of other people around. And, uh, and that really can sort of set people on edge. So I think that would be a good thing to maybe dive into to first is what are some of the strategies that you use with the people you work with to help them stay calm in those situations? I almost always start off by trying to paint a picture around stress that the person can understand. So communication and language is really, really important, particularly when people are vulnerable or you're talking about situations where they're going to feel vulnerable. So, and the more I can get someone to understand what we're trying to achieve from a physiological standpoint, the better. So I try and narrow everything or bring everything back to this concept of stress. When it's a mental health point of view or an emotional point of view, all the names we have like anxiety, depression, PTSD, all these different things, they're all create a physiological stress response under the hood. So under our skin, things start happening and they mirror what happens when we're physically stressed. If you take someone having a panic attack and you took their vitals, it would look very similar to someone who's exercising. Except the person who's exercising has the context of them moving their body. They have this high demand on themselves. So I'd narrow all these broad things down to stress and what happens when we're stressed. Our heart rate goes up, our blood pressure goes up, our arousal goes up, our breathing rate goes up, our sense perception goes up. And of all those things, one of them we can actually tap into. One of them we have, we can exert direct control on, and that is our breathing. So I kind of use breathing and stress as this analogy of, of an explosion and how in a combustion engine, that tiny little explosion is contained, controlled, and drives everything so our car can go forward. If that explosion wasn't contained, the car would simply blow up. Human beings are combustion engines, and stress is our tool or our driving force. But if it gets out of hand, we all kind of know what happens then. It's mm. a good analogy. I, I like that one. And so... What do you find when, what do you find, I guess, either the level of awareness of people's breathing is when they first come to you for the, for the general person? Have, is it something that they've typically never really considered? Yes. And it's often upside down. It's upside down in a sense, if I get them to place a flat palm on their chest and a flat palm on their belly and take a quick full breath in, their top hand will rise and their belly will hollow out. Okay, so they're lifting their chest, their stomach's pulling in, and that is literally upside down in the sense that when we inhale, our diaphragm is supposed to move downwards, our ribs flare out, and we have this expansiveness of building from the bottom to the top. So the first thing I often find is they haven't taken a proper breath in recent memory or if ever. And once they take maybe 10 of these, they immediately feel a difference in themselves. They feel calmer. They get lightheaded. Uh, just because mindless breathing will get you through your entire life. 
but that doesn't mean you should do it. And they're often quite close. People are often closed off to speaking about breathing or changing their breathing because they're like, I've been breathing my whole life and I'm still here. Like, what are you going to do? To those people, I say, you can also drink a bottle of vodka a day for 30 years and live. Doesn't mean you should. <laughs> and they often listen a little better after that. But yeah, mm. it's, it's literally upside down. So getting that bottom-up expansion is where I have to start because we need to build this primary foundation which utilizes our lungs in the way they're supposed to be used because they're essentially giant wet sponges hanging in a cave and all that blood sits at the bottom of our lungs. And if you're only heaving from your chest and your upper thoracic, we're really tipping the cup out 20%, filling it up, tipping it out 20%, filling it up. So it's always quote unquote dirty air because we aren't cinching our waist, squeezing that air out to allow that next breath to spring in. So yeah, that's probably where I start. Yeah. And primary it's, mechanics. I mean, I'd never really, I'd never really uh, heard of it or considered it until I went to a, it's like a, a surfing uh, breath training course with a guy named Baldwin um, yeah, in Newcastle. Yeah. Yeah. And he, I think he's, he's up on the Gold Coast actually where you are. So um, yeah. And he was talking about diaphragmatic breathing and he went through some exercises to help us start to, to develop that. And yeah, that was a couple of years ago, but I'd never really heard of it or considered it before then. And uh, what are some, let's say one exercise that you might take someone through to just begin to learn to breathe from their diaphragm? Diaphragmatic breathing is one of those funny ones in the sense that it's always working. If it wasn't working, you wouldn't be breathing. Like it is the primary mover and it is the primary job. It's just sometimes it gets clouded by our use of accessory muscles. So simply placing two palms either on the side of your belly button, so like on your oblique kind of area, or making a little C grip with your hands and cupping the bottom of your ribs, trying to set your shoulders down and find this elongated posture and then trying to inhale and only focus on your ribs expanding outwards is a really easy place to start. And when what's more important is once you've felt your ribs flare out, that's one thing. But as you'll find out over this podcast, if I get my point across that I want to, your exhaling is everything. Exhale is the goal. And that's when they should come back together. Cinch our weight. As you can see in that video, my ribs really flare open and more importantly, they're almost accordion back together. Um, doing 15 or 20 of those while you're sitting by the pool or before you start to go anywhere and starting to feel this very two-dimensional idea, although breathing is very, very three-dimensional, by just simply focusing on this lateral expansion, this lateral movement, this is where most people are restricted particularly if we're looking at swimmers or triathletes who have limited overhead range and they often feel really tight through their side body, just starting to open that up. And you mentioned in your email, and it's very true for breathing and everything really, it's the balance of relaxed and active movements. Most people when they breathe are just too stiff. All the outside superficial stuff needs to be soft. You need to feel this expansion grow and build from the inside. And that's why I said a sponge before as well, because if you imagine our lungs as balloons, 
Balloons are flimsy and easy to collapse. A sponge soaked full of air, those little air pockets at alveoli, they're backed on top of each other and they create this giant surface area. Like if you were to flatten our lungs out for gas exchange, it's the same size as a tennis court, right? But if we aren't fully expanding and fully contracting, we aren't letting air inflate all of those and we aren't using that inherent force we can produce and actually breathe like most people struggle to breathe at the tiniest of weights on their chest yet i'll work with fighters next door and myself and we have to try and find a breath or someone's trying to tie us into in half like a pretzel we can't be in a perfect you know perfectly stacked pelvic and rib position all the time we have to be able to breathe in compromised positions as well and if you can't breathe sitting down and you can't feel that expansion sitting still or laying down for you to expect your body to find that kind of space and utilize this gas exchange efficiently under pressure or stress, whether it's physical or emotional, how do we do that? So that's why everything starts seated, everything starts calm, and we build our way to more and more challenging things such as breathing through your nose and going for a walk and trying to breathe in for four and out for four while you walk and think, Jesus, that's difficult. Mm. Yeah, I, I like that approach. I have a similar approach when it comes to people going from being a pool swimmer and they want to learn to swim open water. So like, just start with the most basic, the easiest possible version of that. And then progressively, we can just expand what uh, our comfort zone with it. So if, you know, if I couldn't be there with them, it's like, well, right, find somewhere that's flat, it's safer in the open water, but you're swimming just along the shore. And then we can maybe go a little bit further out and then we can start to swim in conditions where it's, it's not flat. There might be a little bit of wind chop and that sort of thing. It's like, just start with the easiest possible version and, and go from there. And uh, I mean, in terms of breathing, like with jujitsu, right? It's one of the, it's probably the, uh, the number one sport where you're probably limited with your, with your ability to breathe, but it's, it's so important when you're um, in, in any of the sort of submissions and you look at someone like, uh, Volkanovski, right? The recent UFC, like he, he got out of those two, um, the, I, I'm not too familiar with jujitsu terms, but he managed to breathe his way through it and, uh, and escape these, these two submissions. And it was, it was incredible that he, that he got out of it. So in a high stress situation like that, and I'm sure you're putting yourselves in yourself in those daily, um, what do you, what are you sort of, uh, thinking about or, or working towards when you find yourself in those sort of situations? Dixon Gracie mentioned it on a recent Joe Rogan podcast. And it's what I tell everyone when it comes to the performance element of breathing and breathing under stress is like, you need to find your exhale. People skip straight to the inhale. They start grasping at the air. Like <laughs> that causes you to panic. And if we're like inflating like that, and we've got this pressure in our head, that makes it worse. So when I'm in a very deep problem, I'm just thinking about staying calm. So I'm thinking about slowly exhaling. I keep my tongue firm to the roof of my mouth. I keep my shoulders and ears all shrugged up. So, cause chokes like what Volkanovsky was in the guillotine in the triangle, they don't cut off your airways. They cut off the blood supply to your brain. It's not a choke across the front of your throat. It's a choke across the side of your neck. We're trying to turn off the carotid arteries that makes you go unconscious. Um, I don't know what he was doing. Like he was his training partner for, for the tough season he was on. Craig Jones is an Australian grappler initially from Adelaide and Melbourne, who now lives in Austin, Texas. Um, he's one of the best guys in the world. So he was beating up Volkanovsky like 
every day for months. And he's one of the greatest grapplers who came from the former greatest grappling team. So it's more of a testament to Craig Jones <laughs> and uh, he, what he would have been putting Volkanovski through and also Volkanovski's mindset, the dude's a savage. And uh, he willed his way through that in a way that will put him in the history books for that reason. And um, it's just about finding this calm. And I, you have to, the calm in the storm is always your exhale. And if the one thing people can take from this podcast is prioritize your exhale because your inhale will come and it's much more intuitive. For example, if you sit up tall right now and exhale out your nose humming until you've squeezed all the air out, it's a really gentle hum that only you can hear. If you squeeze every little drop of the air with that hum, then just relax your belly your stomach should pop back out again and it'll initiate the inhale and then you can keep driving it up from there. That's what, that's the anchor. The anchor is breathe the air out, let it come in. Breathe the air out, let it come in. We know how to inhale. We've prioritized it our entire life. We have this oxygen bias culturally. Carbon dioxide has the worst PR and marketing some of all the major gases. If you turned on the news or the internet, you'd think it was killing everything, but it's also what trees need to breathe. And if we didn't have carbon dioxide in our blood, the oxygen would never get off of our red blood cells. We need these opposing forces. And like we were mentioning, like Hugh was mentioning this morning, inhale dominance is a problem. Balance is in the middle. But to find the middle, you've got to explore fully the other side. And because with triathletes and swimmers, there is this obvious inhale dominance. The, that's the thing that Alison got too, was the learning how to cinch her midsection and squeeze the air out. Similar to what I was saying before, with that humming and trying to squeeze every drop out and then let go and feel your ribs kind of pop. And like with your swimming, effortless swimming, Effortless breathing begins with really focused efforts. You don't just jump in the pool and be like, I'm going to do it effortlessly now. And you just swim. Like, no, there's very specific things you touch on that you have to first grasp and hold on to tightly to understand. And then you learn slowly over time. I can let go and I need 10% of my focus to achieve what used to take 80% of my focus. That's how you find effortlessness. That's how you find where you've got to relax, where you've got to be tense. And then you kind of dance with your breath. You don't fight it. That's what I tell my MMA guys. Don't fight your breath. Fight the dude across from you. You have to dance with your breath. It's a give and take. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, when I originally started effortless swimming. It it was it was about that. It's like you know, effortless swimming takes a lot of effort or a lot of work to achieve, and it's that uh, being able to manage yourself under pressure and and keep calm and and keep your breath calm while you're you know, exerting yourself at a very high level. So it's, it, it does take a lot of um, time and focus to get to that, to get to that point. And um, I, I guess that sort of an almost answers the question. You know, I emailed you saying that recently, you know, a lot of swimmers I've worked with have been having trouble breathing every, so let's say five strokes. So it's like breathe, you know, one, two, three, four, five, and they breathe on the other side. And that's only about five seconds apart. 
yet a lot of swimmers tend to struggle and they can't do more than 50 or hundred meters breathing every fifth stroke, or sometimes we'll go like six or seven. And, uh, what, without, I guess, sort of knowing, um, without being a swimmer yourself, what do you, would you potentially put that down to? Because it's not a fitness thing. These people can run and ride forever. Uh, but I, I would imagine it's something to do with their breathing when they're swimming. I feel that their carbon dioxide tolerance will be playing a factor in this. Uh, have you heard much of carbon dioxide tolerance? A little bit, but uh, like to, like uh, to know the, more. The, the concept was brought in front of me by Brian McKenzie and Rob Wilson from Shift Adapt. These guys from the States, they did their Art of Breath course a few years ago and it really sparked my interest in the breathing even more because it was backed on top of uh, a lot of training and performance and also at that point like seven years of yoga with breathing and mindfulness being a huge part of that philosophy so they kind of sparked my interest in this and then it was obviously built on my prior university education and clinical practice and our body's ability to tolerate elevated carbon dioxide is a reflector of our bodies, of our ability to tolerate stress from all sources. Now, I remember doing a CO2 tolerance test on a age level, tri- like a, an Australian level, like triathlete masters, like 30 to 35s. And her CO2 tolerance score was super low like insanely low. And I was thinking, like, that's interesting because I knew it didn't reflect fitness but i was also surprised i'm like you swim <laughs> like there's breath holding involved in swimming but if we're kind if we swim and we're just kind of having a controlled panic attack for you know however long you need to swim for people are incredibly resilient i come back to the ability to drink a bottle of vodka a day our body will adapt so improving a swimmer's carbon dioxide tolerance uh, sorry an athlete's carbon dioxide tolerance maybe the first place I would start with someone who was struggling to say, hold their breath or do you have them exhaling while they're swimming? Are they holding, they're obviously exhaling like a bubble stream for those five strokes. Yeah. We typically, the way I'd usually want someone to breathe is uh, they'll take the breath and then they'll have a light exhale through their nose. And then just before they turn to get their breath in, we want a, a full exhale from the, from the nose. Um, so that's how we'd, we'd normally want them to be, yeah, to, to be exhaling, but not breathe out everything straight away, which is another sort of problem that some people have because then they sort of run out of air while I've got three strokes or four strokes left. Yes. And uh, the CO2 tolerance test that the, the guys taught, which is like, it's your, essentially you take three tidal breaths in and out through your nose, you inhale a fourth time and you time your slowest most complete exhale without starting, stopping or swap without stopping and starting swallowing and that's how you test your co2 tolerance so already you can see the connection with what you're asking them to do and what the test is itself now i forget the numbers like I, again the shift adapt guys on instagram have all this really good content to check out most people will get under 30 seconds for a timed exhale and again it's like trickling it out your nose going so slow you almost can't even feel it leaving uh, there's a bunch of imagery and stuff you can do. And obviously it's a, it's a test. So there's like practice, like repeating the test will make you better at it. But I now know for myself, my baseline is a minute 30. If I can't exhale one breath in a minute 30 and it's shorter than that, I know I need to have a rest. My nervous system's a bit fried. 
my best is up close to two minutes for an exhale. And that reflects a bunch of things, CO2 tolerance, uh, pulmonary control, like respiratory control, like the ability to like just slightly open the valve at the back of your throat and just let that air trickle out so slowly that you can maintain that. And almost you feel your body almost shrink and then curl almost in on itself when you're very fatigued or very like carbon dioxide's come up. That I think is what they are struggling with and improving their carbon dioxide tolerance would be the best place to start. Mm. Uh, that's, that's good. And uh, I mean, it's, yeah, when we've got these, these five core principles of, of fast freestyle and the very first one is, is breathing and being able to breathe relaxed. And um, we, f- we focus on that and it's um, it's something that I think people are very willing to skip over because they, like you said, I know how to breathe, right? It's uh, and, I, and I'm fine with it, but there's so much more to it, like you're mentioning. And uh, I mean, for you, when did you first start learning about about breathing and uh, and then going down the rabbit hole of, um, you know, just really sort of expanding your, your knowledge on it and then training other people to become aware of it and to improve their breathing? Similar to what you were saying, I started doing yoga because I worked at a coffee shop under a really well-known yoga studio and that the girls would always come in on their training and I was doing it. They were learning how to be yoga instructors and I'd help them with their anatomy and physiology because I'd already had an undergraduate degree in exercise science. So I'd help them out. And one of the girls on her first class was like, do you want to come to my first class? You have never done yoga before. So if I'm shit, you won't know. And I was like, sure. And I remember walking out of it, like floating out of the yoga class and like, wow, I've never felt more relaxed. Looking back now, it was the breathing more so than the movement, but everyone catches on to the movement side of it first. That's when I first started being exposed to it. And over the years, I was more and more open to it because I've just done hundreds of hours of yoga. So I started listening more to the philosophy and trying to separate the wheat from the chaff in terms of what's a bit more grounded in reality and what's a little bit too often a little end instead of just throwing the baby out with the bathwater, like most people can tend to do with things. And I got better and better at breathing. And then when I started doing jujitsu six years ago, you learn how to lose your breath there. Because when you're a white belt, you're in an actual fight. So it's just like controlled spazzy panic attacks for like six to eight months. You've never been more fatigued than after your first round of live sparring in jujitsu. Doesn't matter what sport you've done. If you've never fought another person, it's a whole, whole different kettle of fish, right? And three years ago, I went to the Art of Breath course by the Shift Adapt guys. And they really, like the way I described what they did was they connected all these dots for me. Like I had these dots laid out from my understanding of physiology. I had these dots laid out from training, from yoga. And they came along and they painted this beautiful picture as to where when I finished that one day course, I was supremely confident I'd be able to teach it. I wouldn't be able to do the things that they could do in terms of their applied application, their CO2 tolerance test, but in terms of the theory of it, it just on. I was like, oh shit. It was a very big oh shit moment. From there, I started applying it religiously to myself and I started telling my best mates <laughs> who, uh, uh, who got me into jujitsu. I've been calling him being like, yeah, I learned some shit I can tell you. And he's a father of two, full-time tradie, trains when he can. I accidentally tore his bicep, his pec, sorry, completely off the bone 
four weeks ago. So he's currently in a rehab process, but he's a savage. And I've been trickling in this nose breathing stuff, bottom up, carbon dioxide tolerance, just whenever I could, because I knew we'd appreciate it. And he, he texted me recently saying that he had a bit of a head cold, couldn't breathe through his nose. So he's doing his runs, mouth breathing, and he could only drop his heart rate 30 beats in the minute post run without using his nose. When he got his ability to nasal breathe properly back, he can drop his heart rate 70 beats in a minute post run. Hmm. So I got my MMA fighters next door who have a minute between rounds. They're dropping at 60 beats. Right. So once I saw the power of the recovery element to this in that setting, I was like, oh, geez. And then when I started applying this to my uh, mental health patients, so patients with PTSD, for example, having worked with veterans previously and now working with a few other clients that have it from other sources, their whole stress response is dysregulated. And like I said, the only thing we can tap into directly one-to-one is our breathing. You can't tell your heart to slow down. You can't ask your arousal to be more manageable and focused. You cannot touch that stuff, but you can touch your breath. And I can drop my heart rate 20 beats at rest with one exhale. And that's this stress response we're talking about. And that's way harder done when you're moving or when you're in the moment but it's a reflection of this skill set that if you spend the time doing the breathing and your, your athletes should pay attention to the fact that that's first, I'm sure you put things in order for a reason, the same way every word I've tried to use here is a word for a reason. There's a reason breathing is number one, because if that's shit, everything else is shit. Then you're just building capacity on dysfunction and the end of that race is an injury or not achieving your true potential, whichever comes first. Mm. And and for you, let's, uh, what's an insight into what, how how you think about your breath within a day? So I imagine you're probably training jujitsu most days. You're um, working with with clients most days. What does what does a, a day in your life look like in terms of what you're thinking about your your breath? Because I know for me personally, right, I, I coach swimming uh, every day. I'm working people on their technique and so when i'm in the water and i'm i'm swimming i'm always kind of going through these things in my in my head and i think i'm more highly attuned to it because i am um, coaching others and because it's just what i do day to day so how does it look for you really similar because i listen to what i'm saying to people and i try and practice what i preach most a lot of practitioners i find struggle to do that uh but I really, really try and live what I'm asking people to do. So I often get up in the morning, have coffee. I'll sit on the, I'll sit on the front veranda and do just a little bit of breath work. My partner and I do about 10 minutes together, a little time run, and we just have our own little stuff we like to work through, whether it's like intuitive box breathing or I might do some yogi breathing techniques of over-breathing. We might play with Wim Hof stuff. There's so many things to play with. It's like reps and sets in a gym. Once you understand a bunch of things, you can kind of tailor make your own workout. But I also try to not lose it throughout the day. Like I, I just try and I'll check in every now and then with the, and I'm always breathing through my nose. That's for, for damn sure. I don't use my mouth unless I'm in a big problem, like big problems or fighting black belts or people trying to kill me. That's when I'll start chipping into my mouth. But at the same time, when I start to use my mouth, I don't want to disrupt the pattern. I don't want to go into that chest heaving breath. And 
it's all the things I've told you are the things that are happening in the back of my head, like find your exhale. Uh, when I do strength training, my mouth closed. When I do my cardio, my mouth closed. Like I run, I use the ski erg, the aerosol bikes, the concept two rowing machines. All of that stuff is nasal breathing to me because it's all about building my capacity with my mouth shut. I don't need to be the fastest runner. I don't need to do any of those things. I need to be able to step onto a mat, stay calm and execute my goal, which is to submit my opponent. And by having that not caring about how fast I'm going and that ego check when it comes to those things, my breath is the key focus because like I said, it helps with everything. So my day is, and then when I'm, again, when I'm working with clients, I'll be cueing them as well. And the simplest thing is just keep your mouth shut. <laughs> Don't just keep your mouth shut and slow down. That's what I remind myself of all the time. If I'm running and I'm starting to get a little bit heightened and too heightened and losing my composure, I might do a, big, a few big breaths out my mouth and then get back to nasal breathing. And I, when I'm running, I inhale for four steps and exhale for five steps, right? And that's both in and out through my nose again, they fast. But it's just the pace that I can find. And by slowing down, you get into the zone. And like I was saying before, the balance is in the middle somewhere. You need to find the size of breath or the volume of in versus out to keep your output and your arousal lined up. So a lot of people, when they become too heightened and stressed, they're breathing like, <laughs> so their respiratory rates up here and their outputs here and they're just this dysregulation. When I was learning this shit, I went the other way. I was under breathing for the problem I was in and I could hold on to that for a while, but then it would hit me like a ton of bricks because and, and humans mostly overcorrect. Our first correction is almost always an overcorrection. So I literally underbreathed for the fighting I was doing. So I'd roll, I'd spar for four minutes and then the buzz would ring and I'd be like, <laughs> shit. And then I have to try and get my breath back instead of finding where I needed to be. And that's what I think swimming in triathlon and triathletes have is that it's just you, your mind and the, the, the discipline that you are in. Yes, you're racing other people, but if you can just like find in, out, in, out for the what you need, and I tell you, it's always exhale more. Once you find that, you get in this happy point that Alison might have mentioned to you, where from figuring out that cinching exhale, she noticed her heart rate had gone down, her swimming speed had gone up, and her stroke rate didn't change right and that's the epitome of efficiency mm. is you're going faster and everything's getting easier so and that was just coming down again to that exhale focus and her being able to connect the dots with that last point you say of you trickle the air out and right before you body roll set the breath in forcefully expel the air that's hard to do mm. but once you found that with your coaching cues that all the like kind of little dots aligned and then you've just got this very happy lady who's really enjoying her swimming now hmm. yeah that's right um well, alex i really appreciate you being on the uh, the podcast and for those listening um who would perhaps like to uh, get in touch with you to 
uh, maybe work with you uh, one-on-one or uh, yeah, learn more about what you're doing, what's the best place for them to do that? Best place is head over to Instagram, ab underscore physiology or my website, ab-physiology.com. Shoot me a message or an email. I do Zoom consults or face-to-face consults. Uh, when it comes to the, the breathwork specific things, I've got like a set of protocols we run through. There's like an initial testing that gives us our first protocol, which is like kind of the crawl before you can walk. And I space them out about once every two to four weeks, depending on progression. And once you've gone through the four to six protocols, depending on what you want, you've got all of these tools in your toolkit to create, like I was saying before, like a reps and set style thing with breath work as well. And it's such a handy tool to have not only for performance in the moment, but helping you recover and downshift between training sessions. Like those boys dropping their heart rate 50 to 70 beats in a minute. Like, come on, like if you can stretch that out over, like you've got a three day session and you can bring your heart rate down and you can stay in that rest, digest and recover uh, state. The longer we're in there, the more chance to kind of fill up our cup to go again. So yeah, through Zoom, face-to-face on the Goldie, IG or the website. Fantastic. Well, Alex, I appreciate it. I've certainly learned a lot and, uh, and I really enjoy this sort of stuff because it's easy. I mean, I find for me, it's, it's easy to uh, forget about it because there's so much going on. But when you do come back to your breathing, it, it really sort of simplifies things and it, it helps with everything else. And I find this with swimming, find this with, with surfing when I'm out there when it's a bit bigger. And um, yeah, and, and this stuff is, uh, is very valuable. So thank you very much. And uh, I'll make sure your, uh, all those links are in our show notes and we'll um, yeah, tag them when the episode goes out. So I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, man. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Effortless Swimming Podcast. If you'd like us to help you become a faster, more efficient swimmer, go to www.effortlessswimming.com.